following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Well, good morning. Welcome back. I hope you had a nice vacation. I know I did. I've had more chocolate in the last week than any one person should ever have. But I plan on continuing, so. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to return in our study um, of Paul's first letter to Timothy this morning. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 18 to 20, and that's page 991 in the Pew Bibles. Um, uh, just uh, before I get too far, I want to think, uh, uh, share a couple of things I um, thought of. Uh, number one, if the young people that are passing the plates don't make it all the way to you, uh, there is a black box hanging on the wall back there that you can put your offering in just as well, and that will get collected. And um, the other thing, I don't know if we have shared with you um, our... Our efforts as a church family to support uh, mission work um, is shifting a little bit. For the last uh, 300 years or so, we've been supporting the Boston Project and Oscar and Jenna Twarak uh, in Peru. And we're going to be shifting the way that we do our missions giving um, to support m- um, more local efforts. So um, we are taking on regular uh, support of LifeBridge. Uh, you remember they came and visited uh, with us a little bit. We hope to hear some more from them. Uh, as well as uh, Whitehorse uh, Addiction Center. Uh, we're going to be supporting them more regularly and shifting our giving from the Huarax and Boston Project to these other works um, that are more local. We still want to send uh, trips, uh, groups down to Boston Project in the summertime to do work and mission down there um, and support them that way. But our regular giving will go to these other two mission agencies Instead, okay, Kenny, you got that? <laughs> He's the guy that writes the checks, so it's pretty important. Okay, there, we move on. I'll get it back to First Timothy here. And before we get too far in, I just want to remind us uh, as we read this text um, that this is, first of all, a letter from Paul to Timothy. Uh, that means there are certain aspects of the instructions that are here that are specific to Timothy. Um, and it's also important to remember that uh, Timothy was a leader in a church. He was a uh, pastor. And as such, uh, those whom God has called to leadership within local church families uh, have certain things that they can glean from this text. Um, but Timothy was first and foremost a Christian a disciple of Jesus Christ, and therefore every Christian can find things to learn and apply from this text. So there are lots of different layers um, in the letter to First Timothy, uh, letter to Timothy, the first, I guess. Maybe he had a son named Timothy, the second, junior, the third. So let's look at our text, and we'll dive in before I get too distracted. Uh, I actually would like to read verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1 and then jump ahead to verses 18 through 20 as Paul had kind of interrupted himself 
with verses 8 through 17, as he often did. So uh, verses 3 through 7, and then jump to 18. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, let's pray before we get any further. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to gather together as a family here in this place this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word and how you have spoken to us, to mankind through it. We pray, Father, that your spirit would open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. Open our ears to hear your voice and soften our hearts to receive the message and apply it to our lives. We pray, God, that you would use this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to go back to verse 3 so that we would be reminded of what the the charge was that Paul had given to Timothy, what his marching orders were. And his orders were very clear to preserve sound doctrine within the church in Ephesus. That was Timothy's charge. And in order to fulfill that charge, Timothy had to stand up against false teaching, against the endless genealogies and the myths and the speculations and improper use of the law of Moses that were all contrary to the teaching of Christ and his apostles. And the motivation to correct that false doctrine and get people back on track was not a desire to control people, as the church is often mistaken for doing. It wasn't, they weren't trying to create a bunch of automatons that you just do what we tell you to do and don't think for yourself. The goal was to lovingly correct people so that their lives would reflect the way of Christ. And so that people would grow into mature Christians. And our goals here are no different. Our aim is the same among our own church family, to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ together as a family. And sometimes what that means is there needs to be correction when we're wrong about something. And I wanted to uh, remind you at the outside, out of the outset, that this is, first of all, a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. 
That means certain things in the text are particular to Timothy as a person, such as verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. I asked for a little bit of grace because I haven't spoken for the last two weeks, so I'm a little rusty. Now, verse 18, I say this is peculiar to Timothy because the occasion of Timothy's being set apart for ministry was peculiar. Uh, Not that it was strange, but it's unique to him. Um, But it... um, Yes, not meaning that it was a a weird way to set someone aside for ministry, but that it is not common for every leader within Christ church to be set aside for ministry in the same way. When Timothy was called to ministry, there was a group of believers, the elders, who laid their hands on him, and that included Paul, and the Holy Spirit gave prophetic utterances to some who were there at that time. Paul mentions later in 1 Timothy 4.14 that Timothy was given some spiritual gift at that time by the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands by the elders and by Paul. Why is this important that uh, this was peculiar to Timothy? Well, isn't it clear? Because it didn't happen to me. (laughs) Well, that was funnier to me than to you. Um, so, though this, uh, this experience is not common to every believer who is set apart for a particular ministry, what is common to every believer that, that is called to leadership within the church is that it is the Holy Spirit that does the calling. Just as the Holy Spirit called Timothy to his particular work, it's the Holy Spirit that calls people to leadership and ministry within the church. It's not the traditions of men, and it's not ambitions of men. It is the Holy Spirit who does the calling. He does the empowering to carry out that particular ministry, whatever it happens to be, and wherever it happens to be. For Timothy, the reminder of this event, of his calling, would have been a great encouragement when it came to fulfill his calling. Remember, Timmy, the Holy Spirit. Remember, he spoke to the elders and and through me about the work that he has for you. It wasn't just your imagination. Now, what's important about this is lots of people think they're called to leadership within the church. But it's not necessarily confirmed by anyone else because it's not the Holy Spirit that's doing the calling. And this is very important. If you think, well, I am, God has, God has told me that I have to Go to Bolivia and do a certain work at a certain place and, and I'm gonna go do it. And everybody around you says, no, you're, no, you're not built for that. But you say, no, I'm going because God told me. It's very hard to argue with that, isn't it? If I say, hey, God told me I'm gonna go do this and do that. How can you say, no, he didn't? It's very private, and it's it's incorrect. And there are far too many people that get involved with ministry because they said, God told me to do this, and I'm going to go do it. But everybody around them says, 
I don't, I don't think that's God. I think that might be your, your own voice or the other voices. Anyway, this, for Timothy, this is a reminder that his calling was not his imagination. It wasn't his ambition. It was the Holy Spirit that spoke and set him apart for ministry. And I think for each of us, being reminded of our own testimony is extremely important and can be incredibly encouraging, uh, especially when we are reminded by someone who is there because we forget so quickly. Verse 18 says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Uh, Timothy is again charged to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now again, um, it's very easy for us to start thinking, well, this is just, you know, general Christian life, waging the warfare that, that the Christian life entails. But this again, I think, is particular to Timothy. This, this is not necessarily the warfare that, um, that that is the Christian life in general, but the conflict of a leader in a church. It, the warfare is different. However, we can all learn what it is to wage the good warfare in general. I think it's important to see that Paul says to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight, not just wage a good warfare or fight a good fight one time. It's the good warfare. This is not a matter of a single battle or a solitary conflict. This is the whole war, the whole campaign. I don't know if you're aware of this, but as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a fight on our hands, a constant battle. But it's very important for us to remember, as Ray Stedman reminded us, that the enemy is not people. People are victims. The enemy, the real enemy, is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not people. This was a very powerful reminder to me uh, as I'm preparing for this that there have been people who were adversaries to me or stood in my way to do a particular thing or or tried to knock me down or whatever. People are not the enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Not The world not meaning the people of the world, but the mm, prevailing godless philosophies of self-worship. When you hear people talk about the world, still not talking about people, but the philosophy of the world, godless self-worship. And the flesh, the flesh is the selfish but alien nature that used to belong to us as believers, but is now crucified with Christ, but is screaming out from the cross, come back to me. And the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil is very real. 
the devil and his host of fallen angels who knows exactly what it takes to make us feel, feel fearful and angry and discouraged and worthless. These are our enemies. This is who we are waging war against. This is what we fight. And Paul has given other lists, the Holy Spirit through Paul has given other lists of the, wep- the weapons of our warfare in some of his other letters. But here he names only two. Not that the others aren't important, but he only mentions two here. Faith and a good conscience. Faith and a good conscience. And what is faith? What does he mean? Is it just agreeing with a list of facts? Is it praying that prayer? Going down to the altar that one time? Is that what faith truly is? We live in a time where people are deceived into thinking that I prayed a prayer when I was a kid at camp or at a rally or at a church or at something. And I said that uh, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and then live like we're strangers. You're counting on something that's not real. That's not faith. That was an event. But that is not faith. And faith is not just agreeing with a list of facts. Yes, Jesus lived. He's the Son of God. He died on the cross. He rose again from the grave. Went back to heaven. Amen to that. Count me in. Blah, blah, blah. It's not just agreeing with the facts. I agree that George Washington was the first president of the United States and that he had wooden teeth. Big deal. It doesn't make any diff. Well, doesn't really make any difference in my life. Well, I can sum up faith in one simple phrase. Faith is accepting that we are the problem and that Jesus Christ is the solution. Constant. His death on the cross was for our sin, my sin. And his resurrected life he makes available to us if we would trust in him. But that trust must motivate us to act because we are at war. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And for Paul and for us, Unbelief is not theoretical, it's practical. Donald Miller said, what we believe is not what we say we believe. What we believe is what we do. We must maintain the fight. We must stay in the ring. We have to keep our gloves up. Have you ever noticed, I don't know how many of you watch boxing or have ever watched boxing. Have you ever noticed that the shorts the boxers wear don't have pockets? How impractical is that? Why don't boxers shorts have pockets? They have to keep their hands up when they stand around like this, like me. What happens then? This is exactly what we have to remember. 
We have to keep our hands up like a boxer. He has to keep fighting or he's going to get knocked out. So will we. We wage the good warfare, like Timothy, by holding faith and by holding a good conscience. Not just agreeing with the facts, but acting on them. Trusting in the one. And we also have a good conscience, holding a good conscience. Now, what is this? This is a very confusing topic, I think. This is among the world's most confusing subjects. And it's probably more hotly contested than we're even aware of. What is a good conscience? Now, most people would agree that one's conscience is the ability to tell right from wrong. Right? Isn't that what a conscience is? Up until last week, I would have agreed. Jiminy Cricket would tell us that let our conscience be our guide, right? Remember him? But can we really do that? Well, up until last week, I would have said no. I don't trust that. Like, let my conscience be my guide? Uh, no. I have a deceitfully wicked heart because I'm a man. Well, good thing we can do a little studying. Because I learned, and this is new for me, that the conscience is not given to determine right from wrong. You don't get to decide what is right and what is wrong. Do you know that? Because it is God's word that tells us what is right and what is wrong. Not our conscience. It doesn't determine what is right and wrong. God himself sets the standard, not us. Because what do we do? We want to make everything acceptable. Oh, well, you want to... Um, forget about what the scripture says about how to live a holy life, what it means to follow Christ, and just do it the way that you like and are more comfortable with? It's okay. I mean, as long as you're sincere, right? Huh? The road to hell is paved with sincerity, my friends. We cannot just forget about what God's word says. We cannot accept the sin that people are so happy with and say that it's okay. Because, well, you know, who am I Who am I to judge? We have the word of God. That is our standard. We cannot accept the practices of the world and call them holy just because we don't want to stand up for what is right. That is wrong. The conscience is not given to determine right from wrong because it is God's word that tells us what is right and what is wrong. God himself determines the standard and not us. That is the right use of the law that Mr. Aaron talked about a few weeks ago from verse 8 through 11. It is God who determined that worshiping other gods is wrong. It is God who determines that bowing to idols is wrong. It is God who determined that adultery is wrong. That murder is wrong. That lying is wrong. That stealing is wrong. That's not us. That's not our conscience. Our conscience allows us to lie and to steal. We are not born with an innate desire to do right. It's exactly the opposite. All we want to do is sin. The closest we come to actually appearing to have 
the ability or the desire to only do right is to only do right in front of other people so we don't look bad. You know that's true. A good conscience is born out of faith in Jesus Christ. A good conscience is given to resist deviating from the truth of God's word. That's the purpose of our conscience. God alone gets to say what is right and what is wrong. He sets the moral standard. And a good conscience reminds us to do right by God and the standard that he set. That's the purpose of a good conscience, the conscience at all. Archbishop Richard Watley said, If one's religion doesn't better his morals, his moral deficiencies will corrupt his religion. The rain which falls pure from heaven will not continue pure if it be received in an unclean vessel. If what we believe doesn't affect what we do, what we believe is worthless. If our morals are not determined by what God said is right and what is wrong, and our conscience help us to follow that, then what we say we believe is worthless. And we receive pure rain from heaven in an unclean vessel and and make it dirty. That's not what we want, is it? Our faith is a practical faith. It's not just in our minds what we say we believe, but it's in our hearts and in our hands. It's what we do. As James 2.26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Shipwrecking one's faith and being handed over to Satan, that's pretty serious business. We don't know anything about these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. We just say their names with confidence because nobody knows if we're saying it right or wrong. (laughs) We don't know anything about these guys. Scholars are still divided over whether or not these two are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. These names are used in other places, but we don't know if they're the same people. But that's not really relevant to our discussion. What is relevant is that these two men had rejected sound doctrine. Though they had once professed faith in Christ, They had actively and intentionally pushed away from their previous beliefs. This is called blasphemy. Rejecting and reviling God and their faith had been shipwrecked. And though this example is extreme, it brings up an important topic and that is church discipline. What to do when a brother or sister sins Um, against another. But if you consider this idea of blasphemy, it's not just uh, cursing. It's not just using the Lord's name in vain. It's turning away from God's word 
It's turning away from the true faith. There are churches that are meeting even this morning that call themselves churches and teach blasphemy. That's happening right now. Because they're reviling God and reviling His Word by teaching people to not obey anymore. To not use God's Word as the moral standard. and To be the moral compass. And instead, it's do what you like and what makes you feel good or at least don't do what doesn't make you feel bad. This is unacceptable. And it's blasphemy. So what do we do? Can we stand here and rail against other churches? They should be more like us. <laughs> well, we're, uh, boy, we run the risk of blasphemy ourselves, I think. I'm not going to suggest we put out on our sign, be like us, stop being like you, we do it right, you're all wrong. That's not right. That's not a good idea. But what we do is just like in evangelism, it's one person at a time. When you talk with one person who is in a sin or a sin against you or sinning publicly or is approving a behavior that is not uh, in accordance with the scripture, we do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault between you and them alone. If they listen to you, you have gained your brother or sister. But if they do not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Jesus gave us very clear instructions on how to deal with brothers and sisters who sin. Sin against us or against the Lord. And that last step that Jesus said, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, that's turning someone out of the church. That's what Paul meant by saying, handing them over to Satan, that they may, know, may learn not to blaspheme. That doesn't sound like any fun, does it? Well, it's not. I've had the unfortunate privilege of participating in church discipline to that point before. And usually, you don't get past step one before someone will leave the church and go find another one and just ignore their sin. But church discipline is not designed to punish. It's designed to be a redemptive process. It's not designed to punish or reject people or just be rid of them. Keep your filthy, sinny ways out of here. That's not, that's not the goal. The goal is to show people that they are not better off with their sin. They're not better off without their church family. They're better off without their sin and better off here with us. The Christian life is already a battle. We must never act like the army that shoots its own wounded. That's not the idea. 
Those that choose their sin over the truth of God's word are not to be written off, but are to be loved and prayed for. By God's grace, they might repent of their sin and be restored to fellowship with the Lord and with his church. That's redemption. Paul's charge to Timothy and the Lord's charge to us is to wage the good warfare, to hold on to the faith and hold on to a good conscience so that you can avoid rejecting God's truth and shipwrecking your own faith. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, this is not an easy word this morning, I don't think. But just because it's difficult, don't let us ignore it or forget it. But help us wage a good warfare. Help us to hold on to the true faith, the way of Christ and the apostles. Help us to hold on to a good conscience, choosing the right of God's word, choosing to follow the standard, the moral standard that you have set for us and not departing from it. And help us, Lord, to lovingly warn those who wander from the truth, who reject your word or choose only the parts they like and forget about the parts that don't. Lord, this is hard enough as it is. Help us, Lord, to lovingly exercise church discipline when it's necessary. But most of all, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be necessary. That we would continue to follow you, not choose our sin, not choose our selfishness or the flesh or the world's ways or the devil's disappointments and discouragements. We can only do that with your help. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stay near to us. Remind us of your presence in the moments that we're tempted. Help us to remember that you are there with us. God, we need your help. We pray for your power as we fight this battle, knowing that the victory is already won in Jesus Christ. We just have to live like victors. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.